Margareta Zell was born in the Netherlands in 1876, the eldest of four children. Her family always called her Ngrit. They were simple people, didn't have much money, her father owned a hat shop. Ngrit's parents divorced when she was 15. Her mother died a couple years later and her father remarried. The family fell apart. In her young 20s, Ngrit moved to Paris and began a new life as an exotic dancer with a new name, Madahari. She was mysterious. She was exotic. Claimed many secrets that she was of Hindu birth, had studied exotic dance in exotic places. None of these were actually true. Soon, she was traveling throughout Europe and keeping company with many suitors, most of them military officers for the French, the British, or Germany. One of the German officers was Prince Wilhelm, son of Kaiser Wilhelm II. French intelligence approached her and suggested she seduce the younger Wilhelm to try to gather military secrets that the French could use. They offered her a million francs if she succeeded. Margareta was pulled into a web of espionage. As she was trying to arrange a rendezvous with Prince Wilhelm in 1917, she had a meeting with German officials. They later sent a radio dispatch to Berlin saying she had in fact offered to provide the Germans with French military secrets. The French intercepted that communique and arrested her. They found her guilty of spying against her country and she was killed by firing squad. Historians today consider Matahari an innocent victim caught between tangled secrets and a sham of a trial. Today on Stories and Strategies, a modern chicken and the egg problem. National security agencies are secretive by nature, it's what they do, but is that idea outdated? Increasingly, citizens want to know what's going on so they can protect themselves. My name is Doug Downs, music off the top, composed by Carlos Cartel in 1935 for Una Cabeza. My guest this week is Phil Gursky, joining us from the Ottawa area of Canada. How are things in the Canadian capital today, Phil? Well, if I look over the horizon, Doug, 30 kilometers, they look fine to me, but all I can see are cornfields and uh, and small village life here, but I think it's probably pretty, it's, pretty it's good. It's a farm. <laughs> it's a farming area around Ottawa, right? That's, Absolutely. That's, yeah, people forget yeah. that, that the Ottawa, I mean, the national capital is kind of plunked down. Uh, almost by mistake, Queen Victoria didn't want it here in the 19th century, and everything around is old farmland, either that or Canadian Shield. Take your pick. Yeah, absolutely. Phil, you worked as a senior strategic analyst at CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, specializing in violent Islamic-inspired homegrown terrorism. You were also a senior multilingual analyst at the Communication Security Establishment, CSE, here in Canada, specializing in the Middle East. You were the director of security and intelligence at the SecDev Group. Did I say that right, SecDev? Yep. Okay, not bad. And you've given a number of media interviews and presentations on violent terrorism and radicalization across Canada and around the world. You now lead a company called Borealis Risk, and there's a link to that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So, Phil, let's first set the tone for what these agencies are. Here in Canada, 
What is CSIS? What is the CSE in the United States? What's the role of the FBI and the CIA? In the UK, what's the role of MI5? And for Australians, what is the Australian Security Intelligence Organization? Gotcha. So essentially, Doug, in, in a nutshell, um, Canada's part of what's called the Five Eyes Arrangement. It's a post-World War II intelligence sharing club. It's the best in the world. And each of our countries sort of divides the intelligence pie in various ways. So CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, used to be part of the RCMP until 1984 when it became civilianized. It's essentially a, an intelligence service, which means it collects information to help the government understand threat. CSE uh, is uh, the Signals Intelligence Organization. So it collects signals from outside of Canada to gain intelligence to help decision makers. Each of the Five Eyes partners has an analogy. In the States, it's a bit different. The FBI is, is kind of like the RCMP. They're both law enforcement and security intelligence. So they do both. Um, the equivalent of CSE is called the NSA, National Security Agency. I'm sure it's well known to many of your listeners. In, in Britain, MI5 is the direct CSIS equivalent, not a law enforcement agency. And GCHQ is their SIGINT. And the Australians and the Kiwis down in New Zealand have exactly the same thing. So most of the Five Eyes partners have ad adopted analogous systems over the years in keeping with local laws and our constitutions and charters. There's some minor differences, but most of them do pretty well the same thing. Okay, eyes and ears domestically, eyes and ears internationally for exactly. national security and for threat, roughly? Do I have that by Yeah, the one thing that Canada lacks, which is kind of curious, we don't have a, a foreign in intelligence service per se, like the CIA or MI6, the British uh, Secret Intelligence Service, or even the Australians have one. It was decided way back in 1984 or so, when CSIS was created, Doug, not to give CSIS powers to collect foreign intelligence. Now, that's a whole other podcast I don't want to get into, but we are a bit of the anomaly there. Most of our European partners have, in fact, foreign intelligence services, and we in Canada thought maybe, you know, the Canadian politeness thing, it wears a bit sometimes, I think. The constantly apologizing for things. Sorry. But we don't have a strictly foreign, <laughs> foreign intelligence service per se. But CSIS is allowed to collect intelligence on security threats anywhere in the known universe. It's not restricted to Canada. Okay. It's only with regard to foreign intelligence, which is defined as what foreign states are doing, that it can't collect outside of Canada. So, so these intelligence agencies, they tend to be agencies put in place by government, but... Uh, fully capable of investigating that same government if they have to. So while they're put in place by government, they kind of have to be at arm's length or at least perceived to be because they might have to investigate the government itself to collect, analyze, and exploit information in support of law enforcement, national security, military, and foreign policy objectives. We want them to know before we know so we know that we're okay. So, aren't they secret? I think I follow that. Dick. Aren't they secretive <laughs> by nature, though? Like by by their nature, they have to keep secrets. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the one thing, Doug, that is drilled into you from day one when you work for these organizations is there's two things you protect with your life, and those are sources and methods. So, where you get the information from, and how you get the information. So, just a bit of a, a story that might help your listeners understand. When I was at CSE in the late 1980s, early 90s, I worked in our crypto analytics shop. This is a code-breaking shop. Now, countries encode their information for all kinds of reasons, good or bad. You can imagine that if country A found out that country B could read its codes, what would country A do? Well, it would change the codes overnight, right? It would Because it has to protect its information. So that's very, very sensitive information that is known to very few people because you can't take the chance that your sources will dry up. So that's why people like me, when we go public, as I have in over the past seven years with the CBC, CTV, etc., very careful to not speak to actual capabilities because once you disclose that information, you're sunk. 
your 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 adversaries know what you can do, what you can't do, and they change to make sure that you can't collect on collect on them and understand their motives anymore. So, so then, how how is communications a tool for them other than they want to see and they want to hear? before the rest of us but then by the sounds of that they just want to keep it secret how do they use public relations and communications as a means of engaging the public and why is that important for agencies like these it is important because they they need to explain to canadians or americans or brits whatever why we're paying billions of dollars in intelligence collection because these agencies don't come cheap some of this equipment is extremely expensive you have some very intelligent people that command very high salaries to do this and I think that taxpayers want to know, why are we spending a billion dollars a year on CSIS or whatever the figure is? And if you don't say anything, there's a few problems. One is that the average, you know, maybe uh, taxpayer might say, well, it's not worth the money. Uh, I don't want to pay for that. I'd rather pay for more schools or roads or hydroelectric plants or whatever. Secondly, when you create a vacuum, it gets filled by all kinds of things. And in my experience, you have people who claim to be national security experts say, oh, this is what they're doing and this is why they're doing it with no access to actual any inside information. And, and nine times out of 10, we're probably nine, nine times out of 100, they're actually wrong. So it actually is in the interest of the organizations to at least explain who they are, what they do, why they do it, but not how they do it. That, that goes back to sources and methods. Secondly, um, I think that Canadians have a right to know what our, 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 I call them our protectors, the RCMP, DND, CSC, etc., um, what they know in terms of what are the threats out there? What should you be worried about? Because often, Doug, the best source of information is your average person in the street who sees something a little bit wonky and says, that's not right. I don't, I don't think I, I like what's going on there. And you pick up the phone, you call police, you call whomever to say, I just witnessed this. It strikes me as wrong. I thought you should know. If Canadians don't get that understanding of what the threat is, they don't know what to look out for. And they just become cynical taxpayers. Well, just another government project that's taking money out of my pocket. And we don't want that. One in four. Whether you live in Canada, the United States, Great Britain, or Australia, one in four people is now listening to podcasts weekly. Not just weekly, but multiple podcasts every week. It's their preferred method of communication. If you aren't podcasting, you're missing 25% of your audience. At Stories and Strategies, we produce podcasts for clients anywhere in the world. Maybe a podcast is right for you or your organization. Want to talk about it? Send me an email personally, doug at storiesandstrategies.ca, and we'll set something up. Let's talk podcasts. Uh, there was a review obtained by the Canadian press just a couple of years ago in 2020, and I, I don't think it drew a lot of attention. It was conducted by Morris Rosenberg, a former federal deputy minister of justice here in Canada that basically found Canada's spy agency is excessively secret and <laughs> gave an example, or this is one example. These agencies, all of them, all the ones you've mentioned across the world, they all suffer from that same perspective that they are too secretive. So go into the communication challenges that they've got. You outlined at a high level, look, people are going to draw their own conclusions, leap to their own conclusions. There will be um, uh, darker, shadier characters, probably on the marketing side of things, who jump in and say, I'm an expert, let me explain yeah. everything. And probably what they're trying to do is sell their services to somebody. Precisely. Right, but 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 what are those comms challenges, and how do they really tangibly go about doing it better? 
I think the default position, Doug, for most of these organizations is that once you open your mouth, it's hard to shut it. Meaning, if I tell you a little bit, I open the door just a creak to give you a peek inside, you're going to want to know more. So tell me a bit more about this or about that. That's right. And then these organizations say, well, I've kind of already said too much. I can't say any more. Then there's a set of frustration builds in a sense of cynicism. So you can imagine that from the organization's perspective, it's safer to say absolutely nothing sure. than to say a little bit for fear it's going to lead down the road. So the, you know, the classic response you get from these organizations is I can neither confirm nor deny. Yeah. And that's, that's what they all say. When in actual fact, they have a lot of information. In some cases, these things end up in, in court, in court cases where intelligence leads to evidence. So there's a difference, by the way, between intelligence and evidence under Canadian law. Only evidence is admitted into court. Intelligence is not. And so at the, at the end of the day, a lot of this information may become public anyway. So the challenge is, how much can I tell you right now? That gives you a bit of an insider's view, a bit of a snippet of something you might learn more about six months down the road or six years down the road in case of an extended trial that's going to keep you better informed. It's a very delicate dance to, 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 to play. I'm not, I'm not denying that. I just think that this default of saying nothing has not served us well historically here in Canada. Okay. And is this what helps lead to disinformation as well as misinformation? I think so. And, you know, we're faced now with what some would say is an epidemic of disinformation, misinformation, all kinds of bad things that are out there. You know, as well as I do, Doug. I mean, look, we're, you know, we're on a social media platform right now. I, hey, I'm old enough, old enough to remember my start in intelligence where there was no such thing as social media. No such thing as the internet, the World Wide Web. It's a different world back then trying to gain information. Now we have at our fingertips an incredible wealth of data. And it's great. We, there's no better time to live in terms of information. There's also no, no worse time in history to live in terms of bad information. And I think that, you know, if, if, if average Canadians or Americans could, could almost apply intelligence tradecraft of this. And, and one thing we do to intelligence is the important thing is corroboration. It's like real estate, Doug, where the three most important things are location, location, location. Mm -hmm. And intelligence, corroboration, corroboration, corroboration. Any single source can tell you anything you want to know. But if you corroborate it from independent sources that aren't in touch with each other, the information is a little more secure. So I, I do think that there is a, a way for us to play this game. And I do think the days of simply not wanting to be at the table uh, have long passed. And I will give credit to some organizations which are a little more forthcoming, a little more out there in talking to publics and sharing some information to help keep them informed. While I have you, I'd love to ask a question about cyber terrorism, if that's okay, because that's really uh, starting to prop itself up. I saw your eyes widen as, as I brought that up. Um, this is about having impact on elections. It's a form of terrorism where nobody's crossing any borders. Um, and it has while real terrorism absolutely impacts the people who are directly affected and their families and their loved ones, cyber terrorism can impact a lot more people that way. It, it's almost an invisible threat. Almost. Um, I, I'm going to be very cautious here because I like, as I like to say, I can't spell cyber. I think it starts with an S. I'm not sure. No. <laughs> uh, I never worked in cybersecurity myself, but you're absolutely right. I think what we're learning today is, you know, the old days. And I think, uh, you know, we talk about things like Matahari, these spies from the 1920s. You have to actually be there to collect intelligence. You met in a cafe somewhere or that kind of thing. Nowadays, and we're certainly seeing this with Russian trolls, for example, and, and, and other countries like the Iranians and the Chinese are not moving you know, their butts from their desks and they're gathering information. And, and more importantly, they're also spreading information. We've heard a lot about misinformation during election seasons, for example. We've seen that CSIS has been warning about Chinese interference in Canadian elections for decades now. And, 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 and Russian interference, it doesn't seem to be taken seriously, which really kind of makes me wonder 
what the governments think about why CSIS tells them these types of things. So it is really easy, especially nowadays, given the World Wide Web, given social media, to not have to remove yourself from your home country, which, of course, is a lot safer. I mean, think of it, your worst Cold War stories, Doug. People, you know, operating behind the Iron Curtain in the 1950s and 60s. These people put their lives on the line because if they were caught by the East Germans or the Romanians or the Poles or whatever, they could have been killed. And so I think that nowadays, if you want to be a spy, and you don't want to put your life on the line in that kind of way, you can just sit behind your desk, behind your keyboard, and keep hammering away, spread disinformation. And as we've seen, it actually has an effect because people don't question the veracity. Again, back to corroboration, right? They don't question where the information is coming from. And if it's salacious enough that they want to believe it, they'll act upon it. And as a consequence, we're, we're poorer off as democracies. If it fits your narrative, yeah, for sure. Okay, rapid fire round, um, just because I have your expertise here. I'm convinced, in all honesty, that my I have an iPhone, an iPhone 11. I'm convinced it's listening to me when it's not on. For So if I were to talk about um, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, haven't touched my phone, it's sitting over here on the desk, I'm more likely to see an ad for Reese's Peanut Butter Cups cups just pop up can you confirm or deny that <laughs> <laughs> wow putting me on the spot um i would say it, it probably is i do know that there are ways to get at devices even if they're not turned on per se okay. uh, again it wasn't my specialization but the other thing i just want to throw in here doug i mean you're you're a great guy I, we've come to know each other i, I think you're, you're wonderful I looked at your, your profile for about 15 minutes and found you were so bloody boring that I thought you weren't worth the effort to, to spend more time monitoring you because there are more interesting people and more important people on the planet. So for all your listeners who think that CSIS and CSC and NSA and the CIA are spying on you, yeah, we looked at your file for 30 seconds and nah, there wasn't a lot of there there. So well, we good. move on to the next person. Sorry, I hate, I hate to deflate your bubble, Bob. It's Doug, working. But. It's working. My, my ruse on you is... No, I am. I'm a pretty boring guy. Um. Obviously, you looked at my social media trail. It's an intelligence trail. Can can anyone tap into my computer if I'm online and even see things that are deleted? In other words, is anything ever deleted on a hard drive, ever? I'm not qualified to say so, but I'll simply re respond this way, Doug. People talk about what you know, the CIA is capable of doing, what NSA does and things like that. We are our own worst enemies by basically being out there on social media, often, what, 10, 15, 20 hours a day. We are putting out information there. We're not putting up firewalls or any kind of protection devices against who can see it. And as a consequence, we're basically saying to the world, here's who I am. Here's everything about me. Come ahead. It's like a buffet. Here's me. Have at it. Eat what you want eat, and, and, and eat, you know, don't eat what you don't want. I, I think that people need to become a lot better aware of what they can do to sort of, you know, tie down the hatches a little bit if they don't want certain information out there because we're all too free with, with what we are and who we are. And there are mechanisms to protect your identity and to protect some of the information. But most people, you know, they couldn't bother, right? I mean, when you sign up for a program, isn't there always that 40-page document at the very first that nobody ever reads and agrees to? That I scroll through. Exactly. Yeah, and probably sure. somewhere in there is saying, unless you choose not to, uh, share your data. The default function is for us to share your data. As a consequence, people don't read it and they don't protect themselves. Can agencies track me around town via my phone and cell phone towers? So this past weekend, I was in Montana. If an agency wanted to know my exact movements, what street, what time, whereabouts, can they do all that just, just through my phone? 
They can. Uh, in Canada, and I'm going to say in the United States as well, that's only done through a court warrant. So, you know, CSIS can go to court. It's called a Section 21 warrant. It's like a Part 6 warrant for law enforcement in Canada. They can say, Doug's a real piece of work, and we're really worried about him. And here's what we know about him. Here's what he's done. However, to gain a better picture of what threat he poses to X, Y, or Z, we feel we have to monitor, be able to monitor his, his phone, his tablet, his computer, whatever kind of thing. And if a judge agrees with the case that's being presented based on the evidence at hand, the judge can grant a communications intercept warrant. That in Canada is the only way you can do that, to the best of my knowledge, legally. Now, you can get a scanner. At, is, is Radio Shack still around? Sorry, am I dating I, myself? I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> whatever ra- the source, whatever the Radio Shack became, you know, people can get scanners because they do that for police scanners all the time. So it is possible. But for law enforcement or security intelligence to monitor you, Doug, they need a federal court warrant. Okay, last question. Can they secretly watch me on a Zoom call or an equivalent thereof? Same thing. If they can get an, an access to a warrant to your communications, they can do just about anything, anything you can access to as long as the judge agrees to it. That's amazing. Hey, Phil, thank you for sharing this. Um, it, the idea of collaboration and engagement, um, difficult, really difficult role for these agencies mm-hmm. worldwide. Really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. If you'd like to send a message to my guest, Phil Gursky, you can email him. It's not secretive. The address is in the show notes. <laughs> Stories and Strategies is a co-production of JGR Communications and Stories and Strategies podcasts. And the only thing we ask of you is in the next couple of days, if you have a conversation with someone and it starts to go toward the topic we just talked about, mention this podcast. Maybe hold your phone closer to you so somebody else can hear you at the same time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>